Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. That this would be my career. I never imagined that I would have the privilege of, of living to serve to advance God's interests. But His interests are not in my career. His interests are in you and your well-being. His interests are always placed on the welfare of His sheep, His children, and those who are yet to be His children. And, and so in my years of ministry, I specialized in addressing sexual and relationship issues. Yay! 38 years of ministry around the planet addressing the thing that church culture's done such a good job with. But having been around the block a little while, I love to say it is a better day because the church is becoming better equipped. Rather than judging and rejecting and lamenting and criticizing and excluding, we're becoming equipped with insight and understanding and empowerment. We're learning to put a redemptive face of God out there in the world that they will know this is the God you run to. And then we're also learning to make disciples of a sexual generation because if you've been born again, oh, I don't know, about 10 minutes, you will know that the blood of Jesus washes away the guilt, but not memory, not history, and not your vulnerability. That's the stuff we have to learn to reckon with, but reckon we can. And so I'm so thankful that in nearly four decades of serving the kingdom's interests that we are seeing that shift in attitude. And why not? Because you know, as I always say, we do serve a God who has a history of redeeming our sexuality. This is not new news to God. So I just love to run through a little list of some illustration if you're not clear. I think of Rahab the hooker in Jericho. You, there, I killed that religious spirit right there. And so what Real Talk Kim did not kill at the conference, we will kill it now. But the idea being that she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, but she could see that the God of the Hebrew people is God. And so though she was a woman of moral compromise, she protected the interests of the Hebrew people. It nearly cost her her life. And when God brought judgment to her city, Jericho, and it was destroyed, she and her family were spared, and not just as tolerated refugees, but they were adopted into the family of faith. And Jesus comes through the lineage of a redeemed hooker. Is that not like God to do something like that? That's right. And then I think of Samson, Mr. Macho. Of course, I'm generally not very convincing when I do that. But Samson and King David were both anointed and appointed by God to lead the nation of Israel. But just because you're anointed and appointed does not make you invulnerable. They made wrong choices morally and they suffered consequence. Consequences are like this. You jump off a cliff and on the way down you realize, gee, God, I've made a terrible mistake. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And just like that, God forgives you and then splat, gravity may kill you. Because while God is forgiving, consequences like physics are not. And that's why God invites us to walk on a path of wisdom. God's not into rules. He is into our welfare. And he invites us to consider his path of wisdom for us. Not our pagan culture's path. Not the path of our heart and its own self-interests. But in spite of those other voices, he invites us to hear his voice and walk on the path that will result in our welfare. Because, you know, you don't have to be a Christian or a rocket scientist. You don't have to believe in the Bible or even in God to recognize that if culture just lived by God's wisdom with regard to sexual conduct, there would be no incest, no rape, no date rape. 
There would be not one in four girls and one in six boys sexually violated before the age of 12. There would not be 21 sexually transmitted diseases. There would not be adultery. There would not be pornography. There would not be abortion. There would not be a world without 21 sexually transmitted diseases. There would be a very different world with much less personal and corporate pain and consequence if we just aligned with one thing. So God has a vested interest in humanity and in our welfare. And yet he understands how we can go astray. And that's why I love the fact that even though there can be real world consequences, God does not abandon us to them. And that's why King David's story does not end with his adultery. The, the story does not end in Samson in his failure. Their stories transcend time and culture and they came to their senses and they returned to their confidence in God's character and he restored anointing and appointing and their lives speak to us today in the 21st century that God's redemptive love and power and mercy and grace are bigger than our ability to make a mistake. So if you fall down, you get up and if you get dirty, you wash off, but you don't give up, you get up and you walk on with him. He redeems everything we give him. And, and then I think in the New Testament, there's the trio of the bad girls. God just loves bad girls. He keeps saving them. And I think of bad girl number one, she crashed the dinner party at the house of the religiously correct. And they were scandalized such a naughty girl would show up at their door. And of course, she threw herself at the feet of Jesus and he did not say, what a sinful, naughty, bad girl. Shame on you living like that. Instead, he reminded her, he said, you know, woman, I know all that you've done. Your sins, they are many. I know all of them. But you know what? Your confidence in God's character, it has saved you. Your many sins, they are forgiven. Go in peace with God. First time I ever read that, I thought, what a novel approach to evangelism. He didn't try to beat her up and win a moral argument. Instead, he won her heart and put her to work for his name. The very pers first person who saw the resurrected Christ was that fallen woman. <laughs> then I think of bad girl number two caught in the very act of adultery. Could you imagine being caught in the very act? Don't imagine too hard. Anyway, they caught her. And according to the law of Moses at the time, if you were guilty of adultery, you died by stoning. So they dragged her out to kill her. Terrible death. They dug a hole. They put you in it up to your neck, your head only above the ground level. And then they took rocks and threw them at your head until you died. So they were going to kill her, but they challenged Jesus. They brought Jesus into the fray and asked him, well, what do you say, Rabbi? Law of Moses says she dies. What do you say? And famously, Jesus said, you without sin, go ahead and kill her. And that would be like the Lord Jesus saying to the modern evangelical right-wing conservative Bible-believing church of today. I've had a lot of coffee. That would be like the Lord Jesus saying, go ahead and look down on the fornicators. Go ahead and judge the adulterers. Go ahead and look down on the gay people. Go ahead and think you're better. That is, if you don't mind me telling on you what I know about your secrets, because you and I know if God ever took off our mask, we wouldn't be pointing a finger at anybody. We put a bag over our face and move into the desert until the scandal was over. In other words, the only difference between her and them, she got caught. They had not yet been revealed. And they wisely put their rocks down, recognizing it's easy to be people that it's easy to be critical of other people and be right that other people are wrong. It's better to give mercy because mercy says I'm guilty, but I don't want to pay. So I'm going to sow a karmic seed. I'm going to treat my neighbor like I'd like. Maybe you deserve judgment, but I'm going to sow mercy because when the day the finger points at me, I want to reap mercy. Mercy says you're guilty, but I won't make you pay. 
changed her life. Now, she was guilty of adultery, and so Jesus did not let her off the hook. Why? Because adultery hurts people. Sexual misconduct generally hurts people. And so he says, you know, sister, I am not here to condemn you, but your last choice nearly did condemn you. And I'm not here to do that, but instead, I'm going to ask you to walk away from this way of life and choose better. And you know what? She got a do-over, and no doubt she did choose better. How cool is God to give you a do-over? <laughs> and then I think of bad girl number three, the woman at the well. She's living with her sixth lover. She's a Samaritan, pagan, idolatrous, and yet Jesus is there to engage her at the well. They have a conversation. He says, you know what? You've come here to put water in the jug. That water will not quench your deepest thirst, inferring neither will your lover. But I know you're thirsty, and I've got the living water, and if you would know it, it would quench your deepest thirst better than that lover. I love it how God does not criticize the craving. He says in Psalm 107, I don't take away what you crave. I'll satisfy it rightly. He goes on and engaging her, and, you know, at first she bristled in talking with him. She thought, you know this single Hebrew man talking to me? What's he going to do, solicit me? But after they converse, she said, wow, I can see that you are a prophet from your people, Israel. And I know that one day from your people will come a Messiah who will show us how to be friends again with God. And I think it's remarkable, folks, that Jesus said to a sexually sinful pagan idolatrous, he said something to her more plainly than he said to his own disciples. He said, I who am talking to you am that disciple. And I think Jesus put that in the Bible to remind us that everybody matters right where they are, just like they are. And it's one thing to know about a Messiah. It's another thing to encounter him. So she became an evangelist and said, listen, you got to hear this guy, the one who read my mail and told me everything about myself. Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the New Testament church in Corinth. You know about Corinth. Naughty Corinth. They had a religion base there. You wanted blessing on your crops, atonement for sin. You had sex with a temple prostitute. What a clever faith. What a clever religion. I, I assume the men made that up. But at any rate, uh, when the Holy Spirit came to the city of Corinth, well, you know, the Holy Spirit ushered in the New Testament church. But the Corinthians who came and became born again, they brought their cultural baggage, their cultural bias, their sexual conditioning was a part of their lives. And so we are not surprised that in the Corinthian church there was sexual misconduct. But... Paul writes an interesting couple of letters to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters, you know, 5, 6, and 7, but focusing on chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, some of you here used to sleep around before you were married, and some of you in the congregation have been guilty of adultery, and some of you here have been caught up in pornography and prostitution and other sexual misadventure, but you're not those things now. Now you belong to God. He's made you so clean that He can put His Spirit in your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit, so do not misuse your body sexually. In fact, if you claim the name... He claims your body and he bought it with his blood so he has the right to make the claim do not misuse your body sexually. So there I've just given you seven, seven illustrations over 3,500 years that remind us of this fact that God knows how to redeem this aspect of our lives and that if you struggle, well, who wouldn't? And if you are a Christian struggling in sexuality due to your past or due to the present or in some issue of the heart or in some history of wounding, all I can say is struggle does not mean you're bad and God is not mad. You are not bad. You're simply human and vulnerable and God is not mad. He's our great big redemptive advocate, tempted in every way, shared the human 
drama and experience. And he says in the book of Hebrews, you can run to him and expect to find grace and mercy in your time of need. Therefore, we want to paint the picture of God's character. And of course, as much as I've learned in years of ministry, living abroad for half of my Christian experience, and also traveling around the planet regardless of continent or culture, I see that even if our histories and cultures are different, our humanity is the same, and the Lord is wanting to see himself established as Lord over this private and often problematic part of life, and that we will see him as an advocate we run to, not from. So while I've learned a lot in that regard professionally, the best lessons come out of my journey personally. So again, I always say, I don't think I know it all. But you learn a few things when you've been around the block with God for about four decades. And add to that, I want to make a clear statement in my conversation here with you. I am not here to lecture you. I'm not here to moralize you. I am not here to tell you how to live your life. I am not here to do anything but point you toward the awesome character of God. And therefore, you must be clear, this is a shame-free zone where you are not being criticized. I am simply taking insight that I've learned in my journey, often learning it the hard way, to turn that around like a baton to pass on to you that it will go well with you and encourage you forward in your journey. I'm so grateful to the leadership of this house who are not afraid to go there, have these conversations, give this platform an opportunity so that it will go well with you and those you care about. So that's the nature of our talk. Now with this, I've been unpacking throughout all the campuses and events with Free Chapel, bringing us all onto one page, a conversation that began at Forward. Do we have Forward Conference survivors here? Wasn't that awesome? I had such a good time. And I want to have this conversation with the rest of the house about insights from my journey. But if you're not familiar, if you put up the slide of my family, please. Karen and I have been married for 36 years, and we love being parents, and I love not only being a daddy, I love being a granddaddy. And as I've been sharing, my grandson there in the bottom middle panel, he was six years old at the time of that photo. And, you know, I look at him and I marvel, because when I was six, I did not have the advantage and the happy experience of a normal childhood that he's enjoyed. Like many people, I came from a broken home. But I had been sexually violated by an adult man, a family friend, who taught me things God did not want me to know. Then my mother is killed in an accident, and on the heels of that, I'm separated from my father. All of that by the time I'm six. So with a foundation like that, you appreciate things may not go well. And then, you know, I grew up being labeled, being rejected. It began at about seven, the litany of labeling and words, especially even coming from older people. I wonder how my life might have been different. Though I tried to be one of the guys on swim team and football team and track team, Eagle Scout, motorcycle riding, had two bikes. I went horseback riding and mountain climbing. I could do anything any guy could do. I would even later be an exchange student and even volunteer to join the military. And in spite of all my efforts to be one of the guys and conform to the norm, I could never measure up in the eyes of others. And I continued to feel not only inadequate, but further exploited and labeled. And so you can appreciate that by the time I was a young adult, I was sexually promiscuous sexually boundaryless and very confused sexually and about gender and yet just when you would think I'm too deep in that ditch and too over the edge that's when God rocked up and opened my eyes to his reality you see when I say reality, oh, I already believed in the God of the Bible, maker of heaven and earth. I believed in Jesus, the Messiah. I also, though, believed that God did not love me, and especially because of my sexuality. And I wonder where I learned that idea. 
And so while I believed in God, I did not see him as anything other than judge, not advocate. And I couldn't understand why do others have a blessed life that I've drawn the short straw in life. So whether God liked my life or not, I really couldn't care at this point. I was out to find happiness and peace the best I knew. And so there God found me in the dark corner of my soul. And he opened my eyes to his reality that he loved me and understood me. And in this encounter, he did not say to me, you stop living like that. He said to me, stop resisting me. My son, learn about me. And walk with me. Think of that idea. My son. I know who you are. I know what they say. I still want you. I want you to carry my name. I'm going to anoint you in spite of your disadvantages. I want people to know my character in the midst of your humanity and weakness. I want you to point people to me. He has never held my history over my head. He has never shamed me out or thrown it in my face. He has never humiliated me. He has only called me son and backed me up that I can live a public life under scrutiny, knowing how people will assess me. How can I get up and do it for your welfare? Because God taught me who I am. Because bigger than all the labels more powerful than all the judgments and all the criticisms leveled against me, more powerful than all those opinions washing over me and binding me with words of death. God cut through them all in his authority with words of life that redignified, re-empowered, and realigned me with his intention. So I don't know what labels have been put on you, folks. I don't know what judgments have been dished out at you. I don't know how you've been robbed or deprived, but I can assume you've experienced some of that stuff that life on earth will dish out and Satan will see to it. But I want to encourage you that above all that fray, there is an opinion that matters above everybody else's. And I encourage you to run to that opinion. He has words of life for you. So why am I not a Buddhist? And why am I not a Marxist? And why would I crucify my flesh and swim against the tide of my popular culture telling me I'm misguided? I'll tell you why. It wasn't for rules and services and sermons and singing songs. It's because my eyes were open to that God and in light of it, what kind of life will I be living? And therefore, I began to walk forward with Him and He began to bring cleansing to my defilements, healing to my angry, wounded, ripped-off heart, and He dressed Himself up in skin. And when I was with you last, I shared how my church became God with skin on, loving me so potently, even though they would have felt very inadequate. They did three things so potently well that I am here talking to you today. They accepted me, which says, I'll take you like you are. They held me accountable, which says, we will take you further. And then they affirmed my value that in spite of my obvious history, they assigned value to me that convinced me I do not have to be exploitable in order to be valuable. So that's a little of my story. Now, I want to say when I put those images up of my family, though, I always like to make this clarifying point. I don't put up those images to prove I'm not who I used to be. Anybody can live a double life, and a lot of religious people do. I am not. I will never live like my past never happened. I've learned to build a life beyond it. And while that's not necessarily the goal, God is the goal. But out of God, the goal, he brought possibility awake within me. And so I enjoy a life I never imagined. God, however, is the goal. And so it matters who you listen to, folks. You can listen to your popular culture. 
You can listen to your peer group. You can listen to your pop stars and your academics. But I would advise, above all the other opinions, you seek the opinion that matters and let him speak words of life to you. So now I'm ready to talk, now that we've gotten through our intro. Are you ready to pray and get underway? Here we go. Lord, as always, take these words and anoint them with life and power. Make this more than some infotainment that we discard. Make it a revelation that will advance your kingdom in our lives and through our lives. That will draw us near to you and will also help us not only to be assured of your love, but to go and generously share that in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in going through what we've been looking at together as a congregation in Georgia and here, let me one more time walk through this important list to give us insight. Because, you know, I get asked questions all the time. Why is it I love God and I still struggle? Like the backslidden young man said to me one day, he said, I tried Christianity, it just doesn't work. And I said, excuse me? Jesus does pay for your sins, and he does reconcile you to God the Father now and forever. But what other magic have you been expecting it to do for you? What, get rid of all your vulnerabilities so you have a stainless steel, convenient, easy Christian experience without struggle? Oh, I get that, but that's not called Christianity. That's called wishful thinking. Who suggested to you that you would not struggle? Not God. But I thought I'm a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man or woman is in Christ, they become a new creation. The old life passes away and all things become new. And yet some church cultures, not knowing the original language, have hijacked that verse in English. And they have made it infer that if you're in Jesus, God's waved a magic wand and taken away any aspect of your human history and your vulnerability. Thus, therefore, you really shouldn't be struggling anymore. And that's not what the verse actually says. In the original Greek grammar and tense of verb, it actually means this. In Christ, a transformative process has been initiated, and that process will continue its transformational work in your life. Isn't that a little more like it? When you're born as an infant, you are not born 25. You are born and you begin to grow. You see, many people think that God is an event-only God that vents lead to processes. Conception is an event, but fetal development is a process. And I don't care how holy you are, Christian ladies, you can pray your brains out all you want, but God will not cause a pregnancy to come full term in just three months. Because more important than your convenience or your authority in prayer is that God has a deliberate purpose in fetal development over nine months. And then birth is an event. I got to be there for the birth of my daughter. My wife went into labor and had that kid in less than two hours. Don't hate her. And, (laughs) you know, we got to the midwife. I say we in the imperial way that only a man can when talking of his wife in labor. But we got to the midwife and just six pushes later, our daughter emerged into the world. And that meant the midwife said to me, you've got to help. And that meant that I was in the back of the room screaming, this is like the movie Alien. (laughs) And then, then... My daughter was born, and I even got to cut the umbilical. (laughs) But I learned that night, what an event is birth. Do you know what? It took my daughter 32 years to become 32, and there was nothing God or anybody else could do to have it happen faster or more conveniently. The event is not a substitute for process. The event unleashes process. So being born again is an event, but growing up in God and learning to possess your mind and body is a process. Why do I say this? 
Learning to possess your mind and body as a process does not mean you're earning God's love. He already loves you. You're already born again. You're already his child. You're already in the house. You've already got the name. But now you've entered into a process of learning to grow up into the son or the daughter of his intention. So that means if you fall down, you get up, you get dirty, you wash off, but you don't give up because you're not earning his love. You're not earning his salvation. Jesus has generously made them both available to you. But because he loves you, he's going to disciple you out of pagan culture, out of broken history, and onto a path of wisdom for your welfare. That's what it means to be disciplined as a disciple. Not just saved, but shepherded by the good shepherd who leads you to the good stuff for your welfare. So, in talking about this, we enter into a process where we find that though born again through the event, we are now having to reckon with aspects of history and humanity. And many believers get discouraged. But I want to encourage you, if you're struggling, let's redefine it. Because struggle tells me this. It's not only the normal process of life on earth. Babies struggle to be born. Chickens struggle to hatch out of the egg. Children like my little granddaughter, she's been walking now for a year. But in her process of learning how to walk, she fell down no matter how much she wanted to walk uprightly. And none of us said to her, what a wicked child. Don't you know the will of God is to walk uprightly? <laughs> Developmentally, yes, that was the will of God. But nobody's born walking uprightly. You have to earn how? By falling down and not giving up, but getting up. Because you're designed to walk uprightly. So one day, motor skill and coordination pop into gear. And then a whole new world of freedom emerges for you. And if that's true for little two-year-old kids, it's also true for those of us who were young believers. We are not tr born again walking uprightly. We are born again with the capacity to learn how. And God's love and spirit are with us to help us. And so he would say, get up and try. You win the crown not by running a perfect race. You win if you finish. So persevere. You'll get there. You are made to succeed in this endeavor. But it is useful to understand why we struggle. And struggle also tells me this, that your conscience is awakened unto God. Because if you didn't care what God thought and you didn't care to please him, then you wouldn't be bothering to try. You would still be a slave and a puppet of the flesh. But instead, because you have been awakened to something more, you can't quite escape the orbit of God. You can't quite escape the gravity of the conviction and illumination of the spirit. And therefore, you keep coming back around to these concerns because God has something bigger and bigger better and more than you may have imagined. And he is aligning you. And so it may be a struggle to learn to exercise those feeble limbs, but any physiotherapist will tell you that the car wreck may have been an event, but learning to use your body again can take time. And for people who've been wounded, like through sexual abuse, you know that through therapy, you may have to walk through some of these things to be able to learn to love and trust again, where a wound now closes and it only becomes a scar that you have not only survived, you have healed and you have thrived. And the wound becomes a wellspring to create a ministry like God gave to me, making the devil pay for ever having conspired to rip me off. So that said, let's take a look at why it is your friend will struggle. If you would, please, let's put that on the screen. We're just going to walk through because we want you to see why you were vulnerable, how it makes you vulnerable, God's path of wisdom, and what the Word has to say to back it up. And so we hope that this will be an encouragement for you, that if you find yourself somewhere on the list on the left-hand column, you will not let that shame you out. 
It is my belief that God does not reveal these truths to us to make us feel badly. He shows us only when he is ready to pivot us towards something better. To show you something like this, to criticize you would be cruel, and God is not cruel. God only shows us what doesn't work to pivot us toward what does. And that if there is a problem, there is a solution. Because God is never up in heaven wringing his hands. What is that wonderful quote a hundred years ago from Oswald Chambers? Your fretting is calculating without God in your equation. And we will see how God is in the equation. So you've got a vulnerability, but you've got a redeemer, and his advocacy is bigger than your weakness. But that begins our conversation with point number one. We struggle with our sexuality and in relating to others because of our human nature. It's weak. And in Hebrew language, the word weakness is a very important word. It explains one of the reasons why I still struggle to hit the mark of God's intention. Though I want to hit the mark, there's something else at work within me. A vulnerability, a weakness, a disability. In fact, the Hebrew language for the word weakness does not mean a character fault. That if I worked harder and prayed harder and meant it more, that somehow God would teleport me beyond my vulnerability and I would never struggle again. No, the actual word weakness infers disability, that I cannot fix it. Because you see, if my effort and enlightenment could fix the situation, Jesus died in vain. But Jesus did not die in vain. He died to do for me what I can never do, no matter how much I would try. So even Paul, writer of one-third of the New Testament, says, you know, the thing I should not do, I do it. And the thing I want to do, I don't. Who will deliver me from this death? Thank you, God, for Jesus. And those of us who are aware of our humanity would say the same thing. Because there is this thing at work in my soul. As has been said, if we are Christ's, the power of sin is broken. I'm no longer a puppet. And I get to choose to whom and what I bow. And the penalty of sin is paid. I can access God. He can access me. But we still have to navigate in the presence of an evil world. And we still have predisposition within us. To be sure about your predisposition, you only have to be on the 405 under pressure driving up to LAX to know how real your predisposition is, your propensity to sin. And so we have this propensity to sin and we are operating in the presence of evil. That alone is enough to cause struggle. But weakness, as the word means disability, it's kind of relatable in biology. I mean, I love the sciences because, uh, you know, biology teaches us about God just like psychology teaches us about God, just like theology teaches us about God because God made all these aspects of the material world and the human experience. So what you will often hear me say, if it's true for the body, it's true for the soul. And that's why I encourage you to use your good critical thinking and love science. I think of the author of the book... Um, the language of God, uh, Francis Collins, who is a, a DNA genetic expert and on the, um, uh, the Human Genome Project. He's one of the three American scientists on the Human Genome Project. And he's written a New York Times bestseller called The Language of God. And it's not only about DNA and the interesting facts about it, but it's about his journey from atheism as a scientist into becoming a born-again believer because of the truth about DNA. What was it Einstein said? Oh, yeah, mathematical precision of the universe demands intelligent design. That's why I love the works of Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist and author of 32 books, including Beyond the Cosmos, who is a big proponent of quantum mechanics and string theory and higher mathematics because mathematics proves to him the reality of God.
And, and I think of what Sir Francis Bacon said decades ago. Oh, yeah, you throw a little science at a man, it'll take him away from God. You throw a lot more science at him, it'll bring him back. So in my study of the sciences, too, I discovered that, you know, true for the body, true for the soul. God makes reflective truth here. And so in my family, diabetes is a pretty big genetic weakness. I do not have it, but I began living preemptively over three decades ago. And so I'm trying to minimize my risk. And so, though I don't have the condition, I've learned a lot about it. And if you have diabetes, you know what I'm going to say. And that is, serious diabetes does not yet have a cure, but it is effectively manageable. But management for a diabetic is tedious compared to your non-diabetic life. So for a diabetic, you know, the normal meal you enjoy could kill a diabetic in four to six hours. Therefore, before and after every meal, every day, for the rest of their lives, they've got to draw blood to make sure they're getting their metabolic balance right. And then they've got to exercise, you know, and keep their cardiovascular system optimized so that they don't have hands and feet amputated later in life due to poor circulation. And then they've got to pay attention to their eyesight to make sure retinas are not painlessly bleeding. They've got to pay attention to the urine to make sure kidneys are filtering properly. They have to pay attention and pay attention and pay attention to stuff we never think about in our slack lives every day. But if they pay attention and do what the doctor says, then they will effectively manage the weakness instead of the weakness controlling them. Them and cutting life short. But no matter how good they are at management, they will never produce their own insulin. They must depend on the doctor to give them what the management will not produce. That's our collaboration with God. Because when I did not live for Christ, when I lived for myself, I lived thoughtlessly and self-indulgently and lazily and without thought to consequence. But after I became a Christian, Dr. Jesus began to put me on a new regimen. And I began to pay attention to the things I would feed on. And I began to pay attention to the fruit that I produced. And I began to pay attention to that which interfered with my vision. And I began to run and exercise my faith that it would not atrophy. And I had to pay attention and pay attention and pay attention to keep the balance right and it was also seemingly tedious compared to the lazy slack way I had lived thoughtlessly before but as I did the drill I began to see real world payoff that I began to control my humanity instead of my humanity controlling me however no matter how good I am at managing my humanity according to the word of Dr. Jesus, I will never outgrow depending on him to give me righteousness and salvation because my management cannot produce that. And you know, for me, depending on God is about as good as it gets. I will never be so holy and so healed in this life that I outgrow depending on God my Savior. And it's really not such a bad deal. In fact, the Lord doesn't begrudge it. He doesn't resent that He daily bears my burdens. And He says, yeah, you're the weak one, but I'm the strong one. You're the sinner, I'm the Savior. You get dirty, I make you clean. You can depend on me. You can't get you into heaven, but I can. And I've begun the good work, and I know how to get you through. And so you're not my my first rodeo and my redemption is so potent to cover your uncleanness I can put my spirit in you in spite of all that uncleanness so you are right to place your dependence on God your advocate would you agree yes. secondly I'm glad I mean it was really a rhetorical question I just thought you'd like to feel participatory but let's continue then, of course, we have other reasons to struggle, and that would be culture. Here, you're trying to walk onward with God, weak on the inside, but facing pressure on the outside. You know, it's been 2,300 years since I've been in high school, and uh, I think we had just invented fire. But um, 
I don't live under peer group pressure, which has been well studied. But I still operate under peer pressure. Research about the peer group has revealed this. Most people are very concerned about not satisfying group expectation. That's why they're vulnerable to propaganda and group think. And therefore, uh, research shows of young people that if you have a strong parent-child bond, that will help them weather the expectations of the peer group. Because this bond is more important between parent and child than the bond with the peer group. But if there is not a strong bond with mom and dad, then automatically the peer group wins by default. And what often happens with parents of teenagers is just as we move toward the teenage years where we think kids will roll their eyes at us and really don't care about our opinion, that's profoundly when research shows they care about it even more. And so we cannot allow the eye rolling to be the thing that determines the quantity of our bond. And then, uh, you know, I, I'm not in a peer group situation like that anymore, but my culture still acts like a peer group, putting pressure on me to abandon God's wisdom, to throw off all of those oppressive, harmful restraints, outdated and unnecessary, pathetic Christian myth. Why don't you enjoy being a sexual animal and with consenting opportunities, do all that you can to grab all the gusto you can as you go once around the sun and once around your life on earth. And, and so I'm under that pressure. So why do I not commit adultery? not because of a standard in the Bible. Why? Because I love my wife, and it is the power of our relationship that causes me to extinguish possibility and attraction. Because if you've been married more than 10 minutes, you know you may have said your vows to the one you love, and then at your own wedding reception, you will still notice the world is full of hotties who are available and desirable. And so you, 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 do not, you do not maintain marital fidelity because you were blind to the outside world. You instead crucify those opportunities because attractions prove to be temporary unless you keep cultivating them. How come I don't give in and go back? How come I walk faithfully with God in spite of all the pressure upon me? It's not because I don't know the possibilities that are pleasurable out there. It's because in spite of the possibilities that are pleasurable out there, I care what God thinks. It's the bond here that matters to me more than the opinion of the world around me. And therefore, you understand it's not rules that will save you. It will be the power of relationship to anchor you. Who and what do you love more? So, all around us, we have influences. I think of pop culture. You know, by the time the American kid has reached the age of 16, they've seen 11,000 hours of television. television. That electronic portal through whom you will invite into your soul and your home people and situations you would never associate with in the real world. And so, on average, four hours a day, from four to 16, kids have watched 11,000 hours they have not had 11,000 hours of communication with God Almighty, wisdom from mom and dad or a mentor. They have probably not read the Bible for 11,000 hours or gone to church for 11,000 hours. But for 11,000 hours in their most impressionable years without a developed understanding of consequence, they are having the Pied Piper of popular culture tell them what's hot, what's not, and how they better conform or they will not be validated. So when research of American young adults shows that while they go to church twice a week, but they are still having sex at the same rate as their pagan counterparts, it becomes very obvious to me who they are listening to for their wisdom in boundary setting. I'm not here to be critical. Many times people don't recognize, and young people will often ask me, well, how far then, like, can I go on a date? 
I'll tell you how far you can go, said the daddy of the daughter who's been married for 11 years. Thank God we got that ship launched. Um, <laughs> my advice would be this. If you can't do it in front of your mommy and daddy, you probably shouldn't do it at all. I have become my grandparents. <laughs> now, wait a minute. The reason why I say this, the reason why I say this is that many young couples do not intend to get involved beyond boundaries. And I remember talking to a young couple who came into my office and they were slump-shouldered and felt ashamed. And I said, well, what happened? And they confessed that they had gone further than they ever intended and had become involved in intercourse. And I said, you know, with my history, I am the last person to criticize you. I am not your judge. But you know what? I want to encourage you. You're in here talking to me like this because your conscience is awakened under God and you are going to realign with his wisdom. Now that you've seen, you can cross a boundary. He's not here to reject you or abandon you, but he will invite you again to realign with his wisdom. So that tells me your conscience is awake and that's a good thing because 100,000 years from now, that's what will have mattered, that you realigned. And, you know, uh, Let's take a look at wisdom going forward. How can we avoid a mishap like that now that we know it's possible? I said, what happened that you would have had a misstep? Did you intend to do this? Well, no, of course not, they said. Well, then what happened? Well, they said we were on a date. Uh-huh. And we were in the car. Uh-huh. And, well, you know, we started getting touchy-touchy, feely-feely. Uh-huh. And, well, you know, we got turned on and one thing led to another. Always has, always will, always does. So... <laughs> Every generation has to learn they weren't smarter than the last one on this thing. But I said, what you would have called making out, physically intimate contact designed to turn you on, is really not called making out. It's actually called foreplay, which is the preparation to go all the way. And therefore, why would you practice that if, in fact, you haven't made the risk and responsibility of a covenant that's actually somebody else's property? First of all, it's God's. And so I'm not here to be critical. I'm saying that many times, and I know it was true in my history, I did not think like that because I had been listening to my culture. And my culture told me that whatever two consenting adults want to do is their business, whether mom and dad like it or not. But in the God kingdom, I'm attached to mom and dad. In the God kingdom, my decisions affect other people who care about me. And therefore, I have to live on a different scale of understanding and discern truth from lie, healthy from unhealthy, wisdom from folly, beneficial from detrimental. And I cannot let the wisdom of the the shepherd of the world tell me how to conduct my life because the people who advocate my boundaryless sexual indulgence out there as academics and popular culture stars they do not have to mop up the consequences and pay for that in the mop up of my life so be careful who you're listening to because your father in heaven loves you and he wants life to go well for you but thank God if there has been a mishap it's not too late or too great to climb out of the ditch and choose better we have hope in God rightly. So culture can mislead me, and therefore Romans 12 says, Hey, Sai, don't copy the pagan pattern of your world. Instead, Sai, don't believe every spirit that's speaking to you. Test the media and what they're offering to you. Test the academics and what they're suggesting you should participate in discern it. Is it good? Is it bad? Will it help me? Will it hurt me? And, and you know, beware of those. Jude verse 4 says... Beware of those who teach you God's grace gives you permission to do what you want sexually. No, the grace of God doesn't. The grace of God gives you room to grow up. So I don't expect a two-year-old to act like a 45-year-old. But when a 45-year-old is acting like a two-year-old, there's going to be trouble. 
So God's grace is generous and available. But it is not to be misused for our own self-indulgent, but to grow into His purposes. And I can say His purpose for us all would be responsible conduct of mind and body. You don't have to agree, but I still have the mic. Moving on. Biology, of course, what could be a bigger setup than our biology? It's not our fault. We have an earth suit. And the earth suit is sexualized. And that is by God's design. And so, for example, we have DNA, a DNA code coursing through our veins. And DNA doesn't make you do something, but it creates the push towards something. And so when this young man said to me, I can't help it, si, I'm just one of those Christians, I, I struggle with my sexuality. And I said, oh, you too. Well, get in the line with everybody else. Every Christian in every church and every human on the surface of the earth, one of the reasons why you and I will struggle is because in our DNA is encoded a mandate from God, reproduce the species, please. You don't have to be sexually active, but the push toward the potential is there. My wife and I were reading an article recently that talked about genetic predisposition for men who just can't help being randy, who just can't help being a little horny, who just want to go out there and sow that seed. Wives, you'll just have to understand he can't help it. He wants to take advantage of as many opportunities to sow that DNA. And my wife looked at me and she said, I don't care what your predisposition is, rein it in. In other words, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis had a very interesting shared quote on the idea of genetic predisposition. Because you see, even a hundred years ago, it was popularized that you were the victim of DNA and there was nothing you could do about it. But that's not quite the better, more sophisticated understanding we have. DNA gives us a push. It does not control our higher behaviors. Therefore, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis said, you better be careful about, you know, Mother Nature. Just because Mother Nature gives you a predisposition does not make it normal or natural to indulge. Because Mother Nature isn't your mother. She's your corrupted, fallen sister. So we may have many predispositions. We would be wise not to indulge. But they still give us a push. And then we've got hormones. Si habla espanol, hormones. Disculpe, yo no hablo espanol. Pero yo falo portugués. ¿Tien portugués aquí? Anyway, hormones course through your veins and between the ages of 12 to 17, your sexual hormones increase 600%. I know. And these hormones, they're not released in nice little even IV drip daily dosage for your convenient management, but they're released in waves and in rhythms. And some days the hormonal tide is low and you feel no sexual pressure at last. And you think, I have been delivered from the demon of lust. And I always say you can cast out all the demons you want, but you cannot cast out your hormones. Because about two weeks later, the urge to merge begins to hormonally surge and you feel like a werewolf. Thank you so much. And the fact is, though, we will find many young adults running to the altar in some purity meeting, running to the altar, crying out in some shame. Oh, God, I don't want to offend you in this battle with lust. Take this battle away from me, Lord. Deliver me from this demon of lust. Take it away. And I think God would say, no, dear, you're praying amiss. I take away your guilt, not your humanity. And by my divine design, I have laced your body with powerful chemicals called hormones that will make you feel occasionally sexual. And I'm not going to take that away. Instead, I'm going to give you grace over here and guidelines over here. And in the middle, you're going to learn to grow up and take responsibility for what you think and what you feel. 
I don't take that away. You got to learn to bow down and obey. But don't feel ashamed that you feel occasionally sexual. And so hormones do set us up, and so does our brain. You know, the brain loves pleasure. In fact, you know, uh, the brain perceives boredom as pain. And when you're bored, your brain wants you to go and eat comfort food to stave off that discomfort of boredom. The brain loves pleasure. Do you love chocolate? Most people do, but if you never eat chocolate again, your brain will never forget that you loved it because permanently, chemically set up in your brain is an association that says chocolate equals pleasure, get me more. And the blood of Jesus may wash away guilt, but not chemical patterns once established and reinforced. Similarly, Sex is a powerful pleasure. It is pleasurable emotionally that you are wanted by somebody, and it is powerful viscerally as a, as a pleasurable physical event. When, in fact, you have sexual pleasure, your brain says something like this, Wow, that was awesome. Get me more. It doesn't just say, thank you, have a nice day. It says, get me more. See, the problem with the brain, though, it doesn't weigh sexual pleasure morally. The brain doesn't care if you had pleasure because of kinky, perverse sex or whether you were looking at porn or whether you were having sex with your bride in holy matrimony with the blessing of God. Your brain doesn't care what brought the pleasure. All it knows is that you got pleasure and then it says, get me more. And the more you repeat it, the more you dig a chemical ditch deeper, deeper, deeper. And then when you realize I don't need to live like that, God's asking me to do better. You know you ought not to do it morally, but the want to do it remains. And this is called the war with the flesh, but not this flesh. It's this flesh. The problem is the pattern in the brain. And so when people don't know this, they think, I begged God to take this away. I prayed my brains out in the prayer closet for years for God to take it away. But again, I would repeat, no, dear, you're praying amiss. God takes away guilt, but not deeply ingrained chemical patterns of associated pleasure that you have reinforced year after year. Those are the things you're going to have to recognize and then put off by crucifying and denying. And then you're going to have to replace those things with new outcomes and cultivate those. And that takes two to five years. And many times we're lazy and or ignorant and we want God to it away for our convenience when he would say no you've got to rip up the old weeds and sow the new seeds but if you sow you will surely reap a better harvest and therefore if the brain the good news is if the brain can be trained in self-defeating ways that same brain can be retrained in positive beneficial ways and it works with a little pivot called however the power of however kind of like this all those years of theater finally paid off. Okay. I'm so angry, I don't know what to do. I just like to slap your face off. However, the Word of God says that I'm allowed to be angry, I'm allowed to be sad, I'm allowed to be mad, but in my anger, I'm not going to sin and complicate the situation. But I will talk to my lawyer. Or... I'm so scared, I feel overwhelmed, I'm powerless, I don't know what to do. However... When I am afraid, I have learned that, God, you are present. And that Psalm 56 tells me that I can run to the rock that is higher than I. That when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. That I do not have to face this on my own. And that I can call a friend. But I do not have to live in the torment of anxiety as if I'm a powerless victim still. Because you are present and you are with me. I am afraid. However, I can depend on you. Or... 
I'm so lonely and I hate it and I just want someone's arms around me. However, I am not going to go to the club. I am not going to get drunk and I am not going to casually hook up and then wake up in a bed of some stranger and have regret. Surely there's another way that I can address this concern in a way that is not self-defeating or self-destructive. If I'm lonely, then I'm going to talk to God and clear my head and I'm going to call my accountability partner and be reminded that I have value to people and that there are better ways to make me feel validated than through exploitation. Amen? One more il illustration. I really want that third fudge brownie. However, swimsuit season is still upon us. So... You get my point. Did you notice the pivot? I got to admit the truth about my feelings. I got to practice good mental health. You see, we live in a culture that says, but you've got to be true to your feelings. You've got to be true to your feelings. That's authentic. And I would say, no, nowhere does God ask you ever to be true to your feelings. He says, be true to me in spite of your feelings. Be true to wisdom in spite of your feelings. There's nothing wrong with admitting your feelings. I'm scared. I'm lonely. I'm horny. I'm angry. However, it's how I manage it that matters. Integrity is not the absence of feelings. It's how we manage them. Okay? You'd say anything to get through this, and we're just about there, but not quite yet. You finding this useful for your friend? Listen for them. So God's goal for me over here with my biology is that I steward it. Steward means manage. And learning to manage doesn't happen automatically like driving a car. It's full of risk, but also with practice, we become comfortable and competent and confident in managing risk. It's not different for sexuality. But stewarding, what does the word say? Hey, Sai, don't offer the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. And the real instruments here are not my private parts. It's my imagination that's probably the epicenter of battle. And as Oswald Chambers also said, the imagination is always the last bastion to surrender. And so we also see, Sai, your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. You claim the name, I claim your body as my dwelling place. You don't have permission to do what you want with it sexually. That's the trade-off. I paid a high price to have your body be my temple. So find out what pleases me in this regard. And, and then, hey, Sai, put off your old corrupted self. Put off the old. How? By putting on the new. I want that. However, I want you more, God. That calls my name. However, you call my name. I want you, God. The old master asks for allegiance and indulgence. However, the new master asks for my allegiance and indulgence. So I get to choose to whom I bow. Put off the old how by put on the new. Good biology and good brain training, good cognitive behavioral therapy, and also good Bible. It all comes together in a little verse like that. And then finally, as we move forward, the issue of spiritual forces, which is a fancy way of saying Satan. <laughs> and of course, Satan cannot make you do it. But he gives you opportunities to choose it. Because Satan knows if you grew up without daddy's love, if you grew up without validation, he'll see to it that you are comforted and that you were validated. You see, when the Bible says that sin is satisfying for a season and that sin has power and satisfaction, it's because even sinning can meet needs. Even bad love is better than no love. Proverbs 27 verse 7 is a profound psychological insight that to a man who eats a big meal, 
Well, dessert's really not tempting, but to a person who is starving, even the bitter thing will taste sweet. In modern vernacular, bad love is better than no love at all. So some girl grew up in a home without daddy's love, Satan will see to it she gets compensated because she's hungry. And hungry hearts are easily misdirected. So I think of the pastor who also represents the second thing Satan can do. Satan can deceive us. He tends to deceive us about God's character. I mean, if Adam and Eve, who saw God face to face, could be deceived, what hope have we to escape this risk? And so when Satan deceived Adam and Eve, he did not say, worship me, I'm better. Instead, he said, what? God denied you this fruit? You're kidding. Would a good God deny you something so obviously good that if you partook of it would gratify you? Now, how could a good God deny you something so good? I guess the implication might be he's not as good as he says. And therefore, this was the assassination and insinuation against God's character that caused God, who could have named Lucifer many things, he named him Satan, meaning the one who has accused, meaning God's character to your face and mine. So, centuries later, millennia more, this pastor asks me a question. So, Pastor Sai, do you think that adultery is always wrong? I said, you're not wanting to talk philosophically, are you? What's happening? And he said, well, my wife and I don't love each other anymore. We've outgrown our relationship. But my secretary and I, we just have this anointed flow. We just have this relationship. And, and I wanted to know your thoughts if adultery is always wrong. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I get it that sometimes the word of God is not a straightforward read. And we have to kind of chew through to get what the word is saying. But I thought God was clear on this. Like, it's in the Ten Commandments. And... And, you know, when you read, don't commit adultery, there's no asterisk at the end of it that says, adultery may be permitted under these circumstances. So I said, you know, look, as we laugh about that, the truth that you and I know is that adultery isn't funny. It's terribly, terribly painful and does a lot of harm to individuals and families and even makes a mark in society. And yet it happens. And yet one of the great things I admire about God is that even when we fail to be faithful, he is still faithful. And that he redeems everything we give him. I have friends, they were divorced for nine years because of his adultery. But because they found themselves at the end of the rope and had encounter with God at a deeper level, they reset the foundations of their individual lives. They rediscovered one another. Trust was re-earned and they've been married now. After nine years of divorce, they've been remarried for 25 years. And so, well, you know... That's a wonderful outcome, but you and I also know that that can be rare. It does show you what's possible, but what also is important to remember, that even if the marriage has burned to the ground and cannot be saved, God redeems people out of the fire, and he restores them as individuals and brings healing to their heart that they can love and trust again and live their lives going forward. Yes? That's right. But I got back to this pastor, and I said, you know, I really wish you'd just tell me the truth because the truth is you were willing to trade away your ministry and your marriage because your heart and your body prefer this woman. I said, that's the truth, and I wish you would just own it because anything else is really a rationalization. When you're saying, did God really say I can't have this, you're hearkening back to a garden where the original question was asked that got the mess started. 
Did God really say you can't have it? Did God really say it's out of bounds? Would a good God who loves you deny you something that would be so gratifying for you? And maybe if God would deny you, well, maybe that was written at another time in another language to another people in another situation that has no bearing today. Isn't the church asking the question? So while it is my opinion that your good critical thinking brain that can deduce truth should be doing an examination of scripture and not be afraid to offend God because God can know that your brain should pursue truth and that that honors God and his word can stand up to all kinds of your scrutiny so that you can know what you believe and why. But when you are looking at the word and saying, I want to justify what I want my way, you're in trouble, potentially. Oh, they got the music playing. I am overtime, but I'm also caffeinated. And we're not quite there yet, but we'll get there. I will say, though, when it comes to dealing with the devil, the safe space for you and I is submission to God. We can own the truth about our feelings. I'm attracted to that. I want that. My heart craves for that. I'm afraid. I'm angry. We can admit the truth and then make the best choice to admit it and submit it. It works like this. When I was born again now for a couple of years, I was struggling with my thought life every day. The blood of Jesus had washed away the guilt, but not my memory, not my history, not my vulnerability. And I felt ashamed. We're talking 40 years ago, folks, when church culture didn't have these conversations, when there weren't resources and testimonies and ministries to guide us through the dark forest. Instead, you were supposed to have the victory in Jesus, and that meant you better not have anything else going on. And people lived behind carefully polished masks, but they were struggling. And so I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know what to do. And I cried out to God and I said, you know, God, if this arm wrestling match in my soul is going to be like this every day, I need more grace. But if there's something I can do to improve my lot, would you throw me a bone, please? And the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. Sigh. When you struggle with your dirty thoughts that you love and you hate, you make two big mistakes. I do. You do. Mistake number one is you try to repress them and suppress them and shove them back and hold them at bay to show me you're being a good boy. Yes, God, is that not what one is supposed to do? But it doesn't really work very well or last very long now, side, does it? No, Lord, have you been watching this whole time? But, Sai, why don't you do the one thing with those dirty thoughts that you've never, ever thought to dare do before? What is that, Lord? Why don't you admit them and submit them? And come to me. Look at what I'm thinking, God. I love this and I want this. But also, I love you and I need you. And you call my name. These things call my name, but you call my name. And now given the choice, as much as I want that, I want you more. Help me. And he never said no. He never said beg harder. He never said get back to me on Tuesday. I'm tired. I began a process of running to God. Sometimes that meant talking to God in prayer. Sometimes it meant belonging to a support group. Sometimes it meant talking to a counselor. Sometimes it meant talking to my mates where I could say, would you pray for me? In fact, I'll never forget the day when the director of our men's group said to me at a men's breakfast, hey, Cy, how are you dealing with your battle with those dirty thoughts? And I said, the same as you. 
And then I said, okay, okay, I was watching the television the other day and I saw things I shouldn't and I can't quite get it out of my head. It's stuck. But you know, can I borrow some of your authority and we pour it on top of this dark spot in my soul and it may be embarrassing for me to admit, but I would rather tell on it than have it tell on me later because you know when it comes to sin, you tell on it now or it'll tell on you later. You pay now or you pay more later and any pastor who's ever had a moral failure will tell you they wish to God they had told on sin years earlier than having it tell on them later. And so I ran to God, ran to God, ran to God three, four years and after running to God three to four years and you would think years, it took more than three or four years to get me defiled. It was going to take a little time to weed out the garden and sow the new seed. But after running to God for a period of about four years, one day I realized it's been an entire week and I haven't even been bothered by sexually intrusive thoughts. And that may not seem like a big deal to you. And if that's the case, I'm glad. But for me, having been molested as a child, I could not remember a day that I wasn't interfered with by these intrusive thoughts. And now that they were absent, it was literally a stark difference. And I went running through the filing cabinet of my memory to see if indeed the dirty thoughts were there. And I do not recommend it because of course the thoughts were there because the neurons are there but here's the difference instead of those thoughts being a dark wave that could threaten to wash me out to sea they were now more like an annoying gnat I could swat away and I could get up and go about my day because now I had power and authority over what used to have power over me because I submitted to God again and again and again and again run to God don't run from him does that make sense and so finally, our submission to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have spiritual weapons, and that's one of them, submission. The Lord Jesus has a commandment for us to be baptized. Only three commandments in the new covenant. Love God above yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, so don't seduce and exploit them. And then be baptized. And I do not believe Jesus came to institutionalize a ritual. But I think the ritual tells us the real purpose. While we are raised clean and resurrected out of the grave of our old lives, that's a lovely symbol. The power is this. Jesus was baptized. He didn't invent it. Who was baptizing people at the time Christ was baptized? Jesus' cousin John. Who was John baptizing? People of faith who had wandered from God, but were now returning. And by returning, they were publicly submitting to his authority and power. While Jesus was not a sinner needing to be baptized in repentance, he was a human launching his public ministry. And his first act as an example to us all is that he aligned himself with God, submitting himself to God's authority and purpose. Authority and purpose. And so when we get baptized, that's what we're doing. We are saying, I am forsaking all other gods and lovers and ways of life. I am giving up listening to and baptizing bowing down to the authority of the bully. I am no longer bowing down to the old assumptions of my broken home. I am no longer going to listen to the popular culture tell me who I am and how to live my life. I am going to bow to the authority and the purpose of God. I'm going to submit to him every day and I'm going to yield myself to him instead of these other things and whatever challenges that I will bring it back to God and bow down and admit it and submit it and that's the power that breaks the power of the past. So, Sai, you walk by the Spirit, says Galatians 5. And if you walk by the Spirit, then therefore you will not be fulfilling the cravings of your flesh. Cravings you may have, but you will not be fulfilling them if you are walking by the Spirit. It's not what you don't do. It's what you do. Finally, 
Most people struggle sexually because they're hungry to be loved. So many people I've researched over the years and true to my own story, I just wanted someone to validate me. And I had learned to trade sex for validation. I had given up that bread. But you know what? When I went to church, it wasn't singing that saved me and anchored me. It wasn't sermons that kept me on the path. It wasn't, you know, the activity of going to a service that made the difference. What made the difference is this. The only thing that actually tops up your empty cup to convince you of your value is healthy relationship investments over time that convince you you are loved and valued and that you belong. God dresses himself up in skin by his spirit to give us the bread that's been missing to compensate us and to also bring mending, mending to the broken places of our soul. And if there are wounded spaces in your soul, in due course, he will attend to them. But if you're afraid and a little wary, it's okay. You have reason to be wary. God's not offended. He'll gently wade you in when you're ready and he'll take you further than you thought. That's what I've learned about him. That's why we need one another. The communion of the saints is not a ritual with juice and cracker. The communion of the saints is that I can commune with God and relate healthily with you because Christ has paid with his life to make that possible. And that's what fed my soul better than a lover or a way of life. He satisfied my craving rightly. He puts the lonely in the family. So what about you? You know, as I close, I think of the story of a young man. He wrote a letter to me. That is a little note, a question and answer session I was actually conducting here in the Los Angeles area some years ago. We were collecting anonymous questions from the audience. And this is in the pretext age when people actually used a writing instrument and committed their ideas onto paper, remember? And he wrote his idea down, his question on a piece of paper and and sent it up through the crowd and it made its way to the host who brought it to me. And it was the last question of the night. And it's a lovely way to end our time. The question said this, Dear Pastor Sai, I grew up in a Christian home, but I did not want the faith of my parents. I thought I knew what would make me happy. So I went out into the world convinced I knew what I wanted in life. And these many years later, I find myself in a very dark place and I don't know what to do. What would you tell me? And I thought for a moment, and then I said instinctively, I said, you know, I'm a daddy, and I know what I would say. I would say to you, come home. We can figure out all this other stuff later, but what really matters is that you come home. You know, I think of the prodigal son and the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. He left his father's estate and misspent his inheritance and ended up defiled after a partying life. But he got up and came to his senses and banked on the character of his father. In fact, did you know that the Hebrew word for repent is teshuva? Teshuva is different than the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia means to change your direction. And that can be behaviorally very useful. But teshuva is deeper in meaning. Teshuva means to wake up, come to your senses, and return to father who has everything waiting for you. And the story of the prodigal son is of the wayward young man who woke up 
and he came to his senses. And because he came to his senses, he took a path, the only path that mattered, not to a new city to re-earn the money he misspent or to show his father he's got an improved lifestyle. Instead, banking on his father's character, in spite of his failure, he walked home trusting that his dad's character would receive him. And his dad was not only waiting for him, before he could even finish his apology, his dad covered up his shame with his robe and then put a ring on his finger signifying, you bear my name, people will see you in public and know that we are squared away and right and you will represent me and therefore no shame but now going forward into your real purpose as my son. God has that for all of us if we will come home to him. Would you agree? That's right. So on that note... It's been a pleasure to be here, to talk a little over time, but I hope words of life that will serve you long after our time is concluded. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.